Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And this week, for an extra special manifesto edition of the New Statesman podcast... We discuss the Lib Dem and Labour manifestos. And then we're joined by our new international editor, Jeremy Cliff, to discuss what the election looks like from abroad. So it's M-Day, the Conservative manifest... Sorry, no, the one manifest... Literally, I could have said any party and the word manifesto and it not been wrong other than that one. The, <laughs> the Labour and Liberal Democrat manifestos have in the last 24 hours both dropped. A little before that, the Green manifesto was unveiled. The Labour manifesto is, of course, you know, someone fairly high up the Corbyn project said to me other day that this week was bazooka week. The televised debate format that Jeremy Corbyn has a very strong previous record in. And then the manifesto, which they credit with turning around the political situation last time. We're not going to talk about its political effect because we don't know, because it's just dropped. And we'll talk about that next week. We thought in this kind of manifesto special we would talk a bit about what's in it, what's not in it, yeah, what we like and dislike about it, our kind of impressions of it. So, Yanush, what was your kind of impression of the Lib Dems manifesto? Well, what's really interesting about the Lib Dems manifesto is that their ideas for spending are so different from the Conservative and Labour manifesto. So they've been much more what what you'd call in the sort of Westminster language fiscally prudent. I think they're the only party now that wants to try and stop debt falling. To keep debt falling. Yeah, to, as keep, a, to, to keep debt falling, sorry. As a share of GDP. Yeah, as a, as a percentage of GDP. So that's quite unusual. That sort of d- distinguishes them from the other two parties in a way that is very unusual because usually you'd have the Conservatives trying to position themselves as the most sort of economically responsible and the Labour being more bullish about spending. And so that's sort of shifted the Lib Dems policy offer to, to the right, which tells you a lot about the kind of seats that they're targeting in this election. So I think that was the main takeaway for me from the from their manifesto what about you yeah i think i agree with that because i think the the fascinating thing about their new fiscal rules so all three parties have new fiscal rules to take account of the fact that the assumption is that interest rates will continue to be at historic lows Mm. and then among other things this means that in the next downturn other levers of government policy are going to have to do a lot more because you, you will not have the recourse of being able to reduce interest rates now the fascinating thing is is ed davy loves to to position himself as being fiscally hawkish if you actually look at the content of the man of their their fiscal rule it's a fiscal rule that's actually quite sensible and it's desperately trying to be 
could covered as a fiscal rule and it's incredibly stupid you know it has a <laughs> you know because it basically it's yeah you know, it was kind of was covered and in many ways briefed as you know we're well hard we're the last home of george osbornomics yeah but you know it has a actually does and it is partly a, a an interesting example of how i think you can credit it to any or, or all of the following things how much corbyn's leadership brexit and its effect on the conservative electoral coalition voter fatigue with decade of public spending cuts has moved the dial and the Lib Dems are still planning to spend quite a bit more than the state currently spends in 2017 yeah but, um, but not but, a huge amount more than the Conservatives are planning yeah, to spend which yeah, is the big difference which is the big difference yeah. and also whereas the Conservatives are presenting their spending plans as happy days are here again no, we don't have any fiscal rule for what happens in the lower bound, which is a bit like saying I've got a great door, but it has no lock. Um, <laughs> you know, they're kind of going, well, look, we're free spending. Whereas the Lib Dems, and I think this is exactly right to say about what the voters they, they're targeting are, you know, have this policy where it's just like, well, this is a kind of like classic old fashioned, like centre left. Here's what we'll do in good times. Here's our plan to, to spend more money in the event of a downturn. And by the way, we treat infrastructure as different from day to day spending. Yeah. But yeah, presented in this kind of like, you know, the Iceman cometh style approach to public spending. That's really the only one of the like, difficulties Lib Dems have with, with elections is because all of their policies are voted by their members, they can't do what McDonald did very well with that open reach thing, which is go, and here's a policy which has been devised by me and my wonks that yeah. you've never heard of before, whereas every Lib Dem policy, you're like, I feel I sat through you voting voting whether or not to adopt yeah, this policy. Yeah, like the cannabis legalisation yeah. policy, all of it sounds like you've heard it before, so it's less like they're unveiling new exciting plans. Also, one of the Lib Dem manifesto things is that they're really relying on being the only party that can stop Brexit in, in inverted commas in this election. That is their one big unique selling point. And so that 50 billion remain dividend or whatever they're calling it, that's their sort of, that's at the heart of their manifesto, isn't it? The idea that they can spend this money if we don't leave the EU. And so that's really relying on this election being a Brexit election, which, you know, when you go out and about and speak to different people in different constituencies, there's no, there's no suggestion that actually people will vote predictably along remain leave lines yeah i think because i think what's clever about the remain bonus from a political perspective is it links their kind of usual policy platform of like center leftish sort of like we'll increase school spending we'll do to their what they think their usp of we are the only stop brexit outcome the thing that i think is a strange decision on their part is the 50 billion is pretty unimpeachable right Mm -hmm. yeah it's a a reasonable assumption about what remaining would do to tax receipts assuming that the government that stays in the eu is stable obviously if um if the next election produces a an incredibly hung parliament holds a referendum which is passed by 51 percent of the vote then i think it's unlikely that (laughs) investors would go good times are here again (laughs) uh time to start investing in the uk but if i were them I would have picked something at the upper end of reasonable, 60, 70, 75, simply because, one, because the way it's been covered is essentially that you then have kind of, IFS says Lib Dem policy about right is a one-day story, whereas actually, if I were them, I'd say our remain bonus is 65 billion. 
you hypothecate 40 billion of it, which means you're actually below the what the IFS describes as the reasonable assumption in terms of your day-to-day spending. But you actually have more of a fight about it instead of our, like, our remain bonus where people basically go, yeah, okay, that seems about fair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the it's the figure on the on the bus, isn't it? It's everyone argues about it, so everyone hears the pledge. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on to the Labour manifesto? Let's move on to the Labour manifesto partly because by talking about it, we've given me slightly more time to finish reading the. <laughs> I'm doing that. That's what you've been That's doing. What I've been doing. Yeah, the the. This, I mean, this is the, I'm going to do that classic journalistic trick where someone goes, you know, the weighty tome or the 102-page <laughs> yes, document. Yeah, why is, do people do it's that? It's basically a way of going, I'm not convinced I've noticed everything that's important <laughs> in it, but I just want you to know in advance, and it was long, and, you know... <laughs> and I got it three minutes ago. I got it three minutes and ago. And now and I'm on air. No, yeah, no yeah. blame can accrue to me. But. <laughs> so, yeah, what I think is probably... The, the interesting things, and this is very much because I have literally just read it, going to be the the worldview of, of, of one S. Bush, right? So um, <laughs> the things I think are positive about it is that they have moved to a form of language which is incompatible with supporting a third runway in Heathrow. Yeah, going, oh, it has to meet our air and noise pollution tests. Well, Heathrow as it currently exists doesn't meet air and noise, no. air and noise pollution tests. <clears throat> so that means that that is gone. So that's a big victory for their party's environmentalists. The big victory for the unions is although the 2030 target is still in there in a form of words, it's in there in a way which means that if you are, yeah, you can basically say, well, we'll work towards it. And then, yeah, you can basically go, "Mm, yeah, are you really going to actually, yeah, don't, it's basically there in a way that the trade unions who had concerns about it can go, don't worry, the working towards it will never actually get towards it. Yeah, so it sort of will work towards it if we can protect jobs properly in that process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, so to be honest, I think the, the one upside to Labour's 2030 target, which the policy tools in the ori- both the original proposal, let alone that, are not adequate to me, is then because it's so soon, it means immediately you can go, you're not going to meet that, are you? Mm. The problem, so there's a couple of problems with the 2050 target. One is I think it probably is just too, it's, yeah, it is just too long in terms of the, the climate cha- level of change you'd need. Also, f- seeing as a country of our size, the main thing we can offer in terms of fighting climate change is providing a blueprint for other large developed economies to transition rather than actually particularly adequately meet the need of managing climate change ourselves. So that's another reason why we should try and do it quicker. But the 2050 target allows the Conservatives to be like, small gap, small gap, small gap. In 2040, we will invent magic and the magic will get us to zero. So the the positive thing about the 2030 is it does allow you to then be incredibly churlish about, well, not incredibly churlish, like the obsession with electric cars is one of the worst things to happen to the Labour Party in particular, but the environmental movement in general. There is not enough cobalt in the world to meet our current (laughs) level of car usage in the UK, right? If you you want to get this target, you are just going to have fewer, have to have fewer car journeys. Yeah. So yeah, that is a, that's, that's sort of less great. What's their target for electric cars then? If they so they so so it's this idea that you'll be able to trade. Yeah, the government will basically pay for. Will give you a loan and interest free to switch your vehicle. Right. So actually, it's odd. So the buses announcement, which seemed like it would be more radical than it actually is. I think it's actually a very positive thing. Is then so they? It looked like they're going like, oh well, we'll nationalise it. So councils will have the option to to either provide or run their own, well so yeah to either own or run their own bus services uh, and to be given the regulatory regulatory and financial tools to do so when those buses are state run they will be free to under 25s now i'm not sure because although it is 102 page this is i know having just complained about its length i'm going to say it's only 102 pages <laughs> there is an open question about whether or not for example london buses are state run 
Now, obviously, you can argue that they are, you can argue that they aren't. London already provides buses free to under-18s, so it's not... Ultimately, there's an open argument about whether or not you... Yeah, and already provides them free to people over a certain age as well. So it's not clear to me what that commitment means in practice. Does it mean that if you regulate your buses in a way that you, the government, decide what the services are, what the fares are, but you do not own the rolling stock and equipment? Are you a privatised bus service or a national bus service? I don't, it's, it's not clear. There are some things where you can have mat- massive improvements by either privatising or nationalising a service. I, I think this is a classic example of something where you could do more with regulation, so that seems quite yeah. interesting. And to be honest, addressing the issue of how terrible buses are outside of London is, is good in itself because it's one of the main things that comes up whenever you go out reporting anywhere outside of London. And it's one of those things that's so unsexy to talk about that I think you know, most of the parties sort of don't make it a headline policy. So the fact that they are trying to do something to change how those services are run is positive in itself. But looking at the politics of the Labour manifesto overall, I do think that they've suffered quite a bit because they had these pledges for policies that went through at conference, for example, abolishing private schools, the Green New Deal 2030 target, and also extending freedom of movement to other migrants. And all of those have basically been either watered down or ditched in this manifesto. So they've they've lost the kind of political capital from announcing those policies among people who think those policies sound scary. So, you know, wealthier voters in Labour conservative marginals who don't like the idea of not being allowed to decide what schools to send their children to, but they're not actually having them as their policies. So they're losing some of that sort of radical sort of credentials on, on the left side of the party's sort of power base or the sort of electorate. So they've kind of, they've they've sort of sold themselves as this radical party that can be quite off-putting to certain voters, but then they've rode back on it in the manifesto that is then off-putting to another section of voters. So I, I think that's, they've it's the worst of both worlds, really. Yeah, I mean, so I've got the relevant section on, on free movement here. Mm. There's the, you know, the, the, the very good stuff from last time about, you know, Closing Yarls Woodenbrook's house, yeah. uh, uh, repealing the hostile environment legislation. Uh, but anyhow, if we remain in the EU, freedom of movement would continue. If we leave, it will be subject to negotiations. But we recognise the social and economic benefits that free movement has brought both in terms of EU citizens here and UK citizens abroad. And we will seek to protect those rights. And it's just like one of those things where you're just like... <laughs> so what you've done here is you haven't got a full-throated and inspiring argument for the free movement of people. So you've been outbid by the Lib Dems and the Greens, but you have still got opposition that can entirely fairly be characterised as possibly your... Like, it's just yeah, like... The, yeah, it, it's the worst of both it, worlds. One of those things where, yeah, it's just like, it's just like, yeah, imagine spending four years of this to, like, basically end up with... I mean, it's, it's a fascinating inversion of, of the old New Labour approach to migration, which is basically to go... Yeah, okay, there'll be free movement, but don't worry, we'll make it really horrible for people from outside of the EU who want to come here to go. So there'll probably be limits on free movement. Well, was the position last time, now it's who knows, you know, yeah. you know, this kind of sort of TBC position, but we will be less brutal to people who want to come here from outside. Now, I think it's really positive to do that, but ultimately yeah. one of the things that that No Borders Manifest motion recognised is although although there is a hard limit to the amount of cruelty you can reduce while still having a border. If you don't like the cruelty of border checks, you have got to move towards abolishing 
borders in general, right? Like, you can have all of the language about softening that than you want, but the actual problem is the second you try and restrict immigration, you have to have restrictionist measures. That's why, you know, the Lib Dem thing in 2010 going, we've ended child detention. It's like, no, you haven't. They've just, you know, they've just rebranded it. Yeah, like, you know, or they've just had more family separation as a, as a result. Because, yeah, you, the only way to end bad practices at the border is not to have one. Yeah. yeah, and I think it does feel like, if the purpose of this manifesto, I know I know we said we wouldn't get onto the politics of it, into it, but I feel like the purpose of this manifesto is to give them a shot in the arm that they had last time. And I just think that although this manifesto is more radical economically than the last one, in terms of those sort of central issues, particularly those issues that are so important to small R remain voters of climate and the environment, I think this the steps back and the kind of sort of the party management elements that have dominated in those bits, I think mean this manifesto is not going to be as effective and inspiring and rallying document as the last one. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now we're joined by our new international editor, Jeremy Cliff. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, pleasure to be here. So good to have you on the New Statesman team and in your first New Statesman podcast. What better way to yeah. what do you make inaugurate of my room? new job? Well, I mean, I think the chandeliers were a bit much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> otherwise, they're very, ta- very tasteful. <laughs> so we thought it'd be really useful to have you on, on this manifesto special, to sort of give us an outsider's view. I mean, you used to cover British politics, but you've been covering international politics for a while now. An outsider's view of how it looks and sort of what, what it looks like to other countries, what's going on in the UK at the moment. Obviously, other countries, I mean, my focus has been Europe over the last years. And obviously, the the question there is, does this mean that Brexit will or won't happen? That's the straightforward question that you get asked, almost irrespective of what happens in the UK, even non-political events seem to provoke that. And so I think the fact that it doesn't look like there'll be a second referendum, given the current polling, Boris Johnson's got a deal, people perhaps are starting to feel that that question has been answered. But kind of more broadly, in terms of political science, the interesting thing, I think, looking at Britain from somewhere like Berlin, where I'm based, is that you have these these forces that have been racking European, continental European politics for the last decades, fragmentation, the decline of big tent parties, but which have been contained in Britain by our bizarre first-past-the-post electoral system, are sort of nonetheless struggling to get out of the bounds of those systems. You know, you have the most the most extreme example of this, uh, the, the forces, I would say, is probably the Dutch political system, which has a completely proportional parliament, which now has 13 parties, the reform parties in the governing coalition and just a total range of of political debates and and spectrums many of which don't have anything to do with the traditional left-right divide in britain of course the the same underlying forces the decline of sort of deference to a kind of monolithic institution the decline of class-based identities the rise of cultural politics all of the same forces are at work but they get contained by our first-past-the-post system and the question is i suppose how much can that go on you know you, you you are seeing these forces pushing british politics in different directions despite 
the restrictive effect of first past the post. You know, Labour is being pushed into becoming more of a sort of metropolitan social liberal party. The Tory party is being pushed into being more of a traditional conservative or even Christian Democrat sort of party, going back to the point about spending plans. And you have a kind of a new seam of cultural politics that plays, you know, that, that, that strengthens or raises the prominence of the likes of the Brexit party or the Greens or the Lib Dems. So you sort of have this, you know, it's a bit like European politics is a sort of bottle of fizzy drink that's been shaken up. Except in Britain, the cap's been left on. And the question is, <laughs> will it just blow up? Uh, uh, or, or will it somehow contain those forces? In terms of the over-the-shoulder, because the kind of thing I always think about the 2016 presidential election is I feel like if the, li- the less you knew about that, right, if you were just like, Democrats have been in power for eight years, they've lost X number, you'd be like, oh, well, the Republicans will win it. Weirdly, the more detail <laughs> people had, the more yeah. likely they were to be wrong. So, yeah, from the kind of sort of European perspective, if it was like, oh, you know, centre-right government has been in power through a number of coalitions for nine years, has new leadership and is kind of like going, hey, maybe we're into borrowing. You've got a Liberal Party that seems to be becoming, moving slightly away from its left Liberal position uh, to a more centrist centre-right one. And you have a populist left party in the position of the old Social Democratic one. What would you expect to happen if you were just like, yeah, someone's like an election in, you know, Poland or And and you've got a public knackered by austerity as well. What I would expect to happen, based on pre- recent elections around Europe, is actually that the that the centre right party would hold on to power because the European centre right has proven much better at somehow holding together its electoral coalition than the centre left. Now there are exceptions to that. I mean, you could talk about Spain, for example, where there was recently another election where the fragmentation has been, if anything, stronger on the right than on the left. You've now got the traditional Conservative Party there, but also a sort of centre right liberalish party, Citizens Ciudadanos, and you've got a far right party. Elsewhere, though, broadly speaking, the right is held together better. So look, for example, at, at Poland, where the, the anti-law and justice parties have uh, tried all sorts of different ways of, of, of building a common coalition, common electoral platforms that span everything from kind of moderate liberal conservatives through to the left, to Greens, uh, the far left. And they just haven't managed. Whereas law and justice have got this big coalition, also similarities to the Tories in that they've used kind of quite traditionally left of centre welfareism to kind of bind in le- le- lower earning voters along with an offer of sort of social conservatism and national pride. Law and justice don't look like they're going to lose power anytime soon. You could, I mean, Hungary is more exceptional because of the sort of autocratic tendencies of Viktor Orban, but that's another story where the right has consolidated and the left has fragmented. Even Germany, which is in many ways its own political world, you know, the, the, the CDU has been, the Christian Democrats, Merkel's party, have been bombarded by a lot of uh, demanding events and so forth, and yet they still look almost certain to put up the next chancellor. And that's after much longer in power. Merkel's been there since 2005. So I'd say around Europe, the trend seems to be that the centre-right holds together, that they're all losing. I mean, look at the European Parliament elections last earlier this year, where both the centre-right and the centre-left blocks lost seats, but the centre-left are losing more, which means that in a more fragmented parliament, and you could be talking about Polish, German, whatever, the centre-right remains the largest, most powerful force. And that that's what I tell people. You know, If they ask me what's going to happen with the British election, I'll say it looks to me that, as elsewhere in Europe, the centre-right is somewhat more, or the right is somewhat more consolidated than the left, and therefore they're likely to put up the next Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, out of interest, because I, like, I, I feel like we could talk about what we thought the political position of the Lib Dems in their current incarnation were, mm. maybe people wouldn't listen to it. But I feel, um, <laughs> but if you know, someone comes up to you in Berlin and goes, explain the Lib Dems to me, who, how do happens, you describe... It happens more often than you think. Yeah, um, you know, so would you describe them as more like the FDP or more like D66 in... You know, you know, what to you do you feel the Lib Dems are becoming? I would say to a German that the, that the Lib Dems are a party whose sort of heart 
in some ways is more like the German Greens. Sort of soft left, kind of quite keen on these sort of left of centre cultural debate or, or icons, whether it's pro-Europeanism, environmentalism, civil, civil libertarianism, but their head is much more FDP. The FDP is on the right of the Liberal Party of European, the European Liberal family, and are actually kind of quite right of centre on, on a lot of issues, particularly economic ones. But they're also quite willing to kind of occasionally blow dog whistles on cultural political issues. And I'd say sort of Lib Dem, it seems to me, are on some sort of journey from being a classic sort of centre leftish, whether it's the Green Party, you mentioned D66, very much on the left of the European liberal spectrum, towards being a slightly more. And you know, you see that as well with the electorate. The saying in German politics is that the FDP is the party of accountants and dentists, kind of self employed, sort of individualistic, but right of centre economically. And just looking at the sort of places where the Liberals might gain seats in this election, and there aren't too many, I'd say they're moving in a more FDP ish direction. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anoush Shekelian, and our new international editor, Jeremy Cliff. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is still, regrettably, Devil by the Devil and is still licensed under Creative Commons. Join us next week for our regular edition in which we will be joined by most of the gang. <laughs> <laughs>